Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. You are listening to The Late Show with Lucy Newberger, and we have a real treat for you. We're going to be hearing all about the latest book published by Bloomsbury, Wellbeing in the Primary Class. And here to talk about it, hopefully, I'm going to do a little bit more filler before she becomes a speaker, is... Lucy, I hope wherever you're listening from, whether you're listening live or you're listening back, that you're having a lovely week and that back, return back to work has been a good one for you. Lucy, the show is yours. Good evening and lovely dulcet tones of Tom H. Be there, lovely to, to hear from you. So, well, good evening, good evening, edu folk. I hope you are all well and doing okay. This is all a little bit weird because... I haven't done this in a while and it's a bit like stepping back into the classroom after the summer holidays and trying to remember how to how to teach. So this could go a number of ways. Um, But we are here this evening to talk about Adrian Bethune's book, um, Wellbeing in the Primary Classroom. You will see from the photos that I have posted that I have got post-it notes all through this book. I don't know how much we're even going to to get through because it's quite a quite a chunky book when it arrived in the post um, I think it was last week it um i was surprised actually i thought it was uh, going to be a little bit of a smaller volume than it than it actually is so i have been working my way through it i've been really enjoying it there are bits i need to go back to there are bits i still need to get to so we are going to ask adrian as many questions as possible um related to what i have read so far maybe some parts that i haven't quite got to so there is so much to get through now normally in my shows which is the tuesday late show i don't think i even said that in my excitement this is the tuesday late show um i would go through some life admin and all the various amusing things that have gone on in my classroom but i'm going to spare you that this evening because we've got far more important things to talk about and i can see that adrian is there and ready to go i'm hoping that he's going to see his speaker request in a moment and that he His lovely voice will come through any moment now. But, um, no, I think everything's okay. So we will, uh, we'll just wait for him to join us. But before we do that, I hope you are, have all settled back into term. I've gone down to year four this year, which is lovely for me because it's not actually where I thought I would end up, if I'm honest. It is, um, not something I requested it's actually um I actually wanted to go to year six but I ended up down in year four and it has been absolutely joyful and I'm hoping it stays joyful I'm sure I'm sure it will so you will hear many antics about my class's life uh including some anecdotes actually related to Adrian's book because I've already put some things into practice and I'm hoping that you will too on the back of hearing about the book and hopefully having a go at reading it yourselves i can see that adrian has joined me good evening to you adrian how are you doing you will need to just unmute yourself hello ah, hi lucy there. sorry <laughs> got locked out of my own phone with do you, you having some some difficulties over there yeah no i'm good 
I was I couldn't get into my own phone. I could hear you, but I couldn't literally uh, un- unmute myself. But I'm here and yeah, really excited to be chatting to you this evening. <laughs> well, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for for joining me. I know you've been bombarded by various tweets and messages from me, some of which have probably been slightly of the gibberish fashion because I have been very excited about this. So I appreciate your perseverance and you making it here on a Tuesday evening, which I know is a bit of a uh, a weird and wonderful time, but we are enormously grateful. And as are the people who are in the studio and listening, and there'll be others joining, I'm sure, along the way. So we might as well get into it, get started. Um, Adrian Bethune, I would like you, first of all, to introduce yourself to the listeners. And for those who are unaware of what you get up to on a daily basis, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I'm Adrian Bethune. I uh, am a primary school teacher. I teach part time um, at Broughton Junior School, which is in Aylesbury. I um, what else do I do? I have recently haven't haven't given my first lecture yet, but I've recently uh, joined Oxford Brooks University on their initial teacher education kind of team. So I'll be working with PGCE and their Bachelor of Arts education undergrads all around the the theme of kind of teacher well-being and well-being in the classroom um and yeah and then i i have this kind of organization i say organization just me and my wife uh called teach happy which uh you know delivers training gives talks speaks at you know we speak at conferences we write articles um and it's all around the theme of education well-being of, of pupils and and teaching staff uh yeah and I've been a teacher since 2010 and before that I was I was uh I was a career changer I worked for several years in the music industry um so yeah quite quite a different kind of career in the end um but my my route into teaching was whilst working in the music industry I um signed up to this charity in London called Chance UK and I mentored this nine-year-old boy who, who lived in Hackney, was being taught in a pru at the time. Um, I mentored him for a year. At the same time, I became a governor at my local primary school where a friend of mine worked. And it was the governing and the mentoring that made me want to retrain to be a teacher. And that's, yeah, that's how I am here today. So you were, um, I mean, I don't know how to put this tap, but I suppose a, a later entry into into the wonderful world of teaching yeah i was i was 28 29 when i retrained um so yeah i'd been out of university for uh six six or seven years um and yeah just my first job was a a record label i was a did some uh, work experience and then became a sound engineer and a um tour manager for this band quite randomly but it was um yeah that was really interesting and then after that I kind of worked in this music publishing company um and neither of those roles although they were fun and exciting um they weren't really fulfilling um I talk about in this book like what is happiness what is well-being and I, I use this um definition from this guy called Professor Paul Dolan who says that happiness and well-being is your experiences of pleasure and purpose over time and says that you're trying to get the balance right between pleasure, you know, those things that feel good in the moment that you enjoy, that you experience positive emotions in, and then purpose, 
which is where you feel like you're contributing to society in some kind of important, meaningful way. And music was fun. It was pleasurable, but the, I, I wasn't really getting a sense of purpose from it. Uh, whereas the mentoring and the school governing and working with children, and young people just felt far more meaningful to me. So that's, yeah, that's why I, I changed careers. I mean, that that's a, a pretty, pretty cool story. I mean, I don't I don't think I can top that. I, I trained at, at 26, but I was just kind of wafting around. I wasn't doing anything particularly cool. So you've uh, you've, you've done a lot in your life, Adrian. It's it's uh, it's I mean, wow, I, I'm sort of blown away by your your journey into into the profession. And of course, what you what you've done since. And, you know, you've already touched on um, on well-being and on happiness. How is it that this idea of, of well-being and of happiness and of how important this is, I suppose, in the primary classroom and beyond, how did this become what's sort of shaped you and what you've written about and what you've, I suppose, is it dramatic to say, dedicated your life to? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much all I talk, think and, and read about, uh, at least over the last kind of 13. Well, in fact, it's, it's more than that. Um, yeah, so... Why is this such an important topic to me? It's because, um, and I've, I've spoken about this a lot, even you know, when the first book came out, first edition in 2018, I was really open about this. Um, when I worked in the music industry <clears throat> around 2008, I went through a period of really poor mental health. I experienced anxiety, like quite acute anxiety, you know, where I'd gone through anxious periods before in my life, like, everyone does so being anxious before like you know important exams or leaving home and going off to stay in another city for you know a university all of those kind of things um whereas this period 2008 these anxious feelings just weren't going and in fact they were they were just getting worse and I wasn't able to sleep at night um I went off my food and I lost weight um and I just wasn't able to find pleasure and joy in things that I used to like find pleasure and joy in such as like meeting up with my mates and playing football um and then eventually I guess I just kind of became exhausted through probably the lack of sleep and and I just then I went in a this period of depression and I I guess I always assumed that depression and and it's important to say depression is different for kind of everybody I always assumed that depression was like, you know, extreme sadness. Um, but for me, it was like a complete absence of emotion. Like I just felt completely numb. <laughs> everything felt like black and white, dull. Um, and everything felt futile. Like everything felt pointless. Like um, exercising felt completely pointless. Like meeting friends felt completely pointless. Um even happiness, like I'd, I'd walk around and see people like smiling and laughing. I just think, you know, completely pointless. Like it was really like nihilistic and just really horrible place to be. Um, so yeah, I was in a really bad place at this time in my life. Um, I I was lucky on reflection. I had supportive friends and family that, you know, really looked out for me and supported me. Um, and it was actually a mate of mine that I used to work at a record label with that recommended that I go and see a counsellor. Um, and that just wasn't on my radar until he'd suggested that. And I'm really grateful he did. Um, and in fact, it transpired that he'd gone, he'd gone to counselling because he'd gone through something similar. 
And this was the other interesting thing about that time. People I worked with, other friends, just started to open up and just say, look, I can see you're struggling at the moment. Well, you know, a couple of years ago, I went through this. And people started sharing their own experiences of poor mental health. Um, yeah. And the counselling really, really helped me. Um, and as well as the counselling, I just started to, I'm quite like an analytical person. I like to kind of think about things and, and try and understand them. So I started to research, just, you know, searches online, what, you know, causes of stress, anxiety and depression. Um, and I learned loads about mental health that I just didn't know before. Things that, you know, helped me and things that were quite enlightening. And also as part of this research, I discovered that there was like this science of well-being, um, which some people might say, oh, that just sounds like fluffy well-being nonsense. But actually, it, it transpired that like, Oxford University has a well-being research centre and it has the Oxford Mindfulness Research Centre. Cambridge University has a well-being institute. Uh, London School of Ec Economics has a well-being research centre. Like, all of these top universities have for you know, decades been studying what is it that contributes to human well-being? What is it that gets in the way and, and how can we you know, live our lives differently on an individual level, but also kind of societal to improve our well-being. So I just found that whole journey fascinating. And, yeah, it, it genuinely has ultimately led me to where I am today. It's led me to being, I feel, far more happy, content and satisfied with my life. I feel it's made me way more resilient as a person, like, we might explore this a bit later in this chat, but I've had actually quite a tough summer. Um, it wasn't the relaxing six weeks that I had envisaged. Like my mum and dad both became quite ill, uh, quite out of the blue. I both had hospital days. My dad was in intensive care for two weeks. My mum had to be rushed to a heart specialist hospital and have a, a kind of emergency procedure. You know, and those were obviously really acutely stressful periods and, they, and it's still ongoing like just before <clears throat> I joined this call I'd picked my dad up from a hospital appointment um but my focus on well-being and, and practicing the skills of well-being I feel has allowed me to handle this really stressful difficult period in my life quite well like I feel like I'm doing okay despite all this, all all this stuff I've got on, got going on right now. Um, so yeah, it's kind of what I wanted to mention is like happiness and well-being. It's not just about, you know, making life easier. It's not about oh, I, I can smile because life is good. Sometimes life is really like shitty, and it's not your fault, and it's stuff completely out of your control. And the skills of Happiness and well-being, I genuinely believe, can help you cope better when life is just dealing you a really bad hand and you just need to, like, cope rather than thrive or, you know, anything like that. So, yeah, I can't even remember what the question was now. but <laughs> Well, it was a very thorough answer, Adrian, and, I, and <laughs> thank you for, for, for sharing. I mean, even the, the difficult summary, I appreciate you sharing sharing that with us. I mean... It's uh, obviously sad, sad to hear, but it's also very interesting to learn how um, how important well-being is and how much it has it has taken off. And of course, we're talking about the second edition 
of well-being in the primary classroom. This isn't this isn't round one. You you've managed to uh, to get a whole second uh, second edition out of this. But um, what why 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 round two? Why did you feel that? Uh, um, why not leave it? Because I mean, the first edition was pretty great. There there was a lot in there. There are many people that talk about it. I've sat at conferences where people have. Um, you know, talked about how they've utilised the book, how it's changed mm. their teaching and their and their classrooms. So, why why go for round two? Um, good question. Uh, it was it kind of wasn't planned in a way. I I emailed my editor, um, and just said, by the way, like, what? How, why do people write second editions? What what prompts it? And she said, well, um, normally there's there's new content, uh, and it's generally speaking. Uh, 15 at least 15 percent new new content to be added um would you like to write a second edition then and i was like uh yeah okay so it was just it was more just a general inquiry like i i think i'd seen someone was releasing a second edition and i was like oh i wonder how that comes about um but yeah there was there was more to write about like in the last five years let's let's be realistic so much has happened from 2018 to now, uh, most notably, you know, a global pandemic that, you know, I was chatting to my wife just the other day, you know, it was all kicking off back in February, March, like we could see what was happening in Italy and Europe. And then it was kind of coming here. And then March happened. And my wife and I at the time were like, oh, you know, we know what's going to happen. They're basically just going to extend Easter by two weeks to kind of contain this. And then, you know, two years later, we're still having lockdowns and jabs and all this kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, COVID massively has massively changed the world and continues to, to change the world. We're, I think, only just seeing some of the longer term impacts of COVID through things like uh, increased student absence, through things like uh, poorer recruitment uh, into teaching. Uh, increased mental health difficulties in children and young people. Um, so, yeah, th there was that, that the landscape had massively shifted. Like all of the statistics around children's mental health and well-being were completely out of date. Uh, and sadly, things had gotten worse. Um, and also, when I was delivering training in schools or speaking at conferences, a lot of the content that I was sharing was not in the first edition. Like it was new and updated content, new ideas. It was new research that I either hadn't read or it hadn't even been published at the time. So yeah, that's, that's why this second edition I think is necessary. Um, be, yeah, because the world, the, the landscape has changed and there's just more research coming up all of the time about things that can positively impact our well-being that I think teachers would really benefit from knowing. And it's it's great because it, it fed my uh, my geeky brain because the way um, the way you explain how to use the book is that you've got everything you talk about within the various chapters. You've got the the, the in theory part and then you've got the in action part, which is mm. so great because you can see how everything that you're suggesting or that you've got anecdotes about or stories about or that other teachers have used, it's all rooted in theory, some of which is, as you say, didn't exist at the time when um, when that first edition came out. And so it's, it's really cool to see that in the book and to kind of 
Um, I mean, I've learned more about neuroscience through your book than I think I, I ever have. So that's ah. something as well. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I, what was cool about writing the first edition and obviously the second one as well was that I was, um, I was delving into all of this kind of research and it came from psychologists and it came from neuroscientists and it came from economists and behavioral scientists. And, and I am none of those things. I'm not a psychologist and you're, you know, I'm not an expert in those areas. I just, I, I call myself like an enthusiast. I'm really interested in these areas and um, love reading about it and watching stuff online, etc. Because, I mean, this was my, I guess, my imposter syndrome kicking in as well. Um, when I wrote the first edition and also the second one, because I was writing about subjects that I'm not an expert in, I would I would um, email, reach out, tweet, went went on LinkedIn, all of these different platforms, and basically reached out to experts that I had cited in the book. So, like the Crawling Table Classrooms chapter, Louis Cosolino was someone that I referenced quite a bit, you know, and so I I managed to can track him down on LinkedIn and and basically I'd ask these experts like I'm a primary school teacher I've written this book I have cited your work please <laughs> could you read the chapter um where I've you know referenced your work and, and just sense check it and just make sure I'm on the right track and I haven't misquoted you know um and I would say about 85 percent of the people that I reached out to said yep like email me at this address and were so generous with their time. Um, and yeah, that just gave me the confidence, like, you know, they they would give me feedback or say, oh, actually that piece of research has kind of been debunked, so I wouldn't cite that or, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, and that just gave me the confidence to be like, okay, I, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not an expert in this area, but the experts have said that this is okay, or if I tweak this, then that, that you know, that's more accurate. So that that was a really positive <clears throat> part of the writing process was and really bloody scary actually like waiting for the feedback was like horrible, um, but yeah everyone was very generous with their time and very kind with their feedback and it I genuinely believe it's helped make the book much better. I mean, certainly in terms of, of making sense of things, definitely, because, I mean, touching on again, the um, because this is the part that I've already started implementing. I think I shared with you my uh, my class flag the, the mm. other day, so, um, something that you suggest about when you're talking about setting up a a, a tribal classroom. And it's something I, I hadn't considered before. And I, I sat with my class and I talked to them about teams and about tribes. And uh, sort of asked what they understood the meaning of of teams and tribes to be, and we kind of we you know we stuck words up, we had conversations and all sorts of things. And then I asked them, and I said to them, "Do you consider yourselves a tribe?" Because they talked about a lot of um, they sort of talked about um, tribes in the Amazon and things like that, sort of things. What mm. they, but then I said, you know, how do those tribes work? What do they need in order to to live together, work together? And they they thought about it a bit more. And then I said to them. So does that make you a tribe? And a few of them sat mm. and pondered. And when they sort of made the connection in their brain that actually, you know, we we are a team, we are a tribe, that whole life, just in that one conversation, based on what I'd read in the chapter, seeing that come to life was also great for me as well to actually take something I've read, take something I've I've thought about from from well being in the primary classroom and see that come to life 
just in that just in a couple of sessions was was really really cool and I think at the start of the year for for teachers to be able to to do that and have that set up and have that because we all go through those through those setups with uh, you know with things like class contracts etc yeah. and I actually I actually didn't do that I did I did the 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 class flag instead and it's there and it's in pride of place and I've had so many uh, compliments and comments on it already so um mm. that's been that's been really awesome yeah do you know what I I would say that that's um it's probably the idea that's resonating most with teachers. It's one I get tweeted about the most or emailed or, you know, tagged in Instagram, like these gorgeous class flags. I think the reason why it works is one, it's really simple. Uh, two, it's, it's a really concrete activity to do with your class at the beginning of a year when you're trying to establish those norms and routines and, and values. Uh, three, it's like it's a positive focus on what you want rather than, you know, when you have, you have those classes that are tricky and you, you start to get sick of your own voice because all you're doing is like nagging and moaning. Like the team flag I found is a way of just, yeah, reorienting our attention to like, okay, what did we, what values out in the playground do we forget about when we were doing X, Y, and Z? What, what can we be focusing on right now in this next lesson to show that we can be more of a team? Um, yeah, and the other thing is, the other reason I reckon it really resonates is it's, like, it's just creative. It's The team flags are just designed to be bright and bold and colourful and eye-catching. There's no right or wrong. They don't have to be, you know, we should take pride in them and make them look, um, you know, well-presented, but ultimately... It, it, it's literally 30 individual pieces of art that come together to create one big, beautiful piece of art. And that, in a way, is like a metaphor for our class, right? We've got 30, I mean, depending on the number of kids in your class, you've got 30 individuals that come together to make this one big whole. Um, so, yeah, I think that's why that's why that, that idea kind of really resonates. It's creative, it's simple. It's a nice way to start your your year off, and it's something you can complete. Sorry, you can continue to refer back to. Almost oh, definitely, and because I suppose it, it it's come from from them, and and they own it. The idea that you know when you are pointing out, it's not something that you've kind of that you've written up or typed up or whatever. Yeah. It is their stuff from the outset, and so. Um, certainly from my side of it I've just seen that they seem to already have more of a connection to it and are more willing to kind of follow what it says yeah there's one of the new things that I I added into um, the second edition is um is this idea of self-determination theory it comes from these two psychologists called Desi and Ryan uh essentially for, for people listening broadly speaking psychologists used to believe that there were two main drivers of um, our behavior, two main motivators. One was biological. So we're motivated to act in certain ways because of biological drives for food, for water, like finding a mate. And the second driver was kind of extrinsic. So basically threats and punishments and rewards are things that drive us. So if you do this, I'll give you a bonus. Or if you do that, I will give you a fine. So, you know, generally for a long period of time how psychologists thought we were motivated to behave 
And then um, I believe it was Desi first discovered that actually some people are motivated intrinsically. So purely because they want to do something, not because they stand to gain something, not because they're worried about some kind of punishment. They're just intrinsically motivated. And that's the basis of self-determination theory. But what Desi and Ryan found was that there are kind of three pillars to, to being intrinsically motivated. One is uh, feeling connected to others. So part of a team, part of something bigger than yourself, which is all about team flags. Um, second thing is um, competence, uh, which is feeling like you are good at something or you are improving and, and getting better and mastering a skill. Uh, and the third thing is is control, like autonomy. Um, so all of those three things play into the team players. You've got connection, part of the team. You've got competence, like you're creating something. Uh, and the third thing is control, like you are in control of the values that you are saying are important. Like you've just said, it's not your teacher saying these, which is what happens in school, right? These are our core values. We've chosen them. You have no say in them. You know, there's a place for that. But the team flag is what I call like micro values. They work in schools that have, you know, school values. But this is like in our classroom, in our team, What what is it that really matters to you? What do you think makes a team cohesive and successful? Um, so, yeah, you're giving kids that autonomy uh, and the team flag is theirs. Like they created it. Um, so yeah, I I love the fact that that kids feel a sense of pride and ownership over those team flags. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where Adapt come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment, and mental health support, protection without the politics. So what makes Adapt different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT. Supporting school staff protecting careers and uh, i really hope that i mean there's we're still early in the year i'm hoping that people uh will will uh have a go themselves and i think it's something that could work uh, across ages as well i mean i'm i am in primary as as well but i ha i don't see why this couldn't work for for older children as as well i mean i think it's it's just as important when you're in secondary as when you are in primary so i don't know if you've mm. ever had any secondary examples or had any of this yeah. with you but there's, um, there's a guy called dr rob lowe um he was one of the founders of i think it's called relational relationship i can't remember the relationships foundation i think it's called anyway he was he was giving a talk a keynote at this conference and i was also speaking uh, and I listened to his keynote and he listened to my talk. And afterwards he said, oh, the team flag is what we would call a symbol of unity. Um, and yeah, it is, a symbol of unity is basically some kind of symbol that you belong to something bigger than just yourself. So it can be anything like in secondary. It doesn't have to be a team flag. It could be uh, a song, 
a kind of a, a motto. It can be a logo, an emblem. It can be, you know, a dance routine, a, a kind of um, a special hand gesture that you do. You know, so, yeah, I think the symbol of unity is the important thing. That's the kind of principle. That's the idea. I've kind of turned that into team flags in primary classrooms, but in secondary, it can be anything. So, yeah, it, it's definitely relevant whether you are a primary age child, a second child, uh, this taps into all of us. Like when, we, when we're working in schools as staff, when you're working in a company, like you need to feel part of something bigger than just yourself. And again, we know from research that companies where there is more of a sense of belonging, they tend to be more successful, more profitable because, you know, your employees want to do well because they, they're part of a team. So, yeah, it, it's relevant to all age groups, definitely. And, you know, once you've built that that solid foundation, then I suppose comes the rest, because without that sense of belonging, without that togetherness, without that trust in each other, however you want to phrase it, the rest can't really happen. I mean, I think that's, I mean, I'm, I is I suppose, is that why you put it as the first first chapter in the book? Yeah, so everything. exactly. And that's what Professor Louis Cozzolino says, which is where I, I've borrowed that phrase, creating tribal classrooms from him. He basically says that, yeah, it is fundamental to turning on kids' brains for learning, feeling safe, feeling what he calls protected and connected. Um, without that sense of safety and security, kids will not be willing to take risks. And as we all know, as teachers, to, to learn new things, you've got to take a risk. You've got to push yourself. You've got to be willing to make a mistake. You've got to be willing to fail. You've got to be willing at times to make a bit of a fool of yourself, you know, dust yourself down and, and, and have another go at another time. And all of that comes from having these kind of safe, supportive um, relationships. Uh, and without it, you know, it, yeah, Cozzolino says it just turns off our brains. Like we, we, we want to retreat rather than approach um and that is not conducive to good learning. Well, on that note, and I am going to leap a, leap around the the, the book a, a little bit, which will uh, probably well, I hope it isn't isn't frustrating. And there are things that I, if we have time, we'll come back to. But uh, I wanted to kind of skip forward to to sort of chapter four and chapter five. So talking mm. uh, about neuroplasticity and also that whole stretch zone, because in I suppose once you've got you know that that setup, then you know, it really is about the learning in class and this idea of um, where can I find? It? I'm sort of frantically flicking through pages mm -hmm. here. The idea of of understanding the elastic brain and this this idea that you know all of our brains are are, are malleable and are uh, changeable rather than yeah. just. And I know um, you uh, talk about the uh, old theory. About brains being like computers, but also we've all heard the idea of kids, uh, you know, being just kind of um, buckets that you fill up with knowledge, and it's just it's just not like that. It's just mm. far more sort of loose and and flowing than that. And I love the idea of of actually getting children to understand more about how their brains work. It hadn't really ever crossed my mind as a teacher, which sounds ridiculous because. Yeah, they're using their brains daily. They know they're understanding what they're capable of, how much is too much and things like that. But to actually give them more of an understanding of what is going on on a daily basis, I think is such a, a, a cool and different idea that I hadn't 
hadn't heard about before. Yeah, I mean, when I find neuroscience fascinating, um, and who uh, Sarah Jane Blakemore, famous neuroscientist at Cambridge University, I was at a conference and she was speaking, and she, I'm, I'm don't quote me on this because it it will be wrong, but she said something like, um, you know, ninety percent of what we know about the brain we've only learned in the last ten years, something like that. And it's fascinating because the brain, which literally is um, controls everything from our heart rate to our breathing to our thinking, everything. We just haven't really studied or known how to study for, for a very long time. Like we 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 know more about the heart than we do about the brain. Um, so yeah, when I read books about neuroscience or when I watch documentaries, I just find it like mind-blowing and from my experience of sharing what I would say child-friendly neuroscience and there are some really good books out there that are aimed at kids and there are some cool little videos that you can share when you start to talk about the brain and how the brain works and how we learn and how neurons fire together and how synapses are formed and all of this kind of cool stuff those lessons are the ones where I have the most engagement, like the most hands go up, the most questions are asked, um, the most that the most follow up happens. And what I mean by that is like children will come in after that lesson and tell me stuff the next day that they've looked up on the Internet or that they've read in a book at home. You know, so why are we fascinated by the brain? My theory is that a core part of being a human being is that we spend a lot of our lives trying to work ourselves out, like understand ourselves, like our behavior, our motivation, you know, why we behave in a certain way, et cetera. And at the heart of that is like our brains. So when we learn more about our brains and we start to understand, you know, our impulses and our reactions to things, I just think it's really revelationary. And, and that's true with, kids as much as adults yeah i mean absolutely why why shouldn't they be learning learning about it from a young age and learning about um the uh the, the happy hormones as, as you call them and, and how different ones work and i suppose what the 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 fear factor is for i mean i can only talk from my own level i mean there are other people um certainly in the studio and if you want to chip in i should say please do it at any point um, who kind of think, oh, well, gosh, I don't have a degree in neuroscience. How can I even begin to talk about this? But what's great about like, this whole chapter is that it says, well, you know, you, you, you can. You don't need to have an extensive knowledge to share with children how their brain works. You can do it in a very child-friendly way because I suppose your understanding is, or as, a, as a teacher, as a non-neuroscience expert, is not a huge amount above that. Mm. <laughs> yeah exactly like the 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 basic mechanics are i think well documented in terms of like how our brains send messages to each other how you know when you're learning something new certain neurons involved in that piece of learning will start to communicate with each other via these electrochemical signals and they literally send messages back and forth back and forth uh and very weak connections are start are kind of formed between these these neurons 
Now, if you don't do any practice, those weak connections, they kind of, they're very brittle and they'll break. And, you know, your brain is such a, a, a energy hungry organ. If, um, if neurons or uh, neural connections are not being used, it's kind of like a waste of energy. And so there is this kind of use it or lose it principle with, with synapses and connections in the brain. Like if they're not being used, if, if you've learned something, uh, and you've got these connections between neurons and then you don't practice anymore. You don't revisit that material. Your brain is like, well, we need this energy for, for other bits of learning that we are paying attention to. So there's the use it or lose it principle, which I think is really important for kids to know. And that's a pretty well established kind of, for want of a better word, rule about our brains. Unless we use it, unless we practice and rehearse something, we will forget it. Yeah. Uh, or we'll become, you know, poorly skilled eventually. Well, the term neural Darwinism was was a was a new one on me, which is essentially what you what you have just just described, I believe. Yeah. Uh, if my memory serves serves me correctly, which is yeah, the idea that you know, use it or 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 lose it. I mean, you hear people talk a, a lot about that with 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 language learning, especially. I've heard that yeah, oh, I haven't used my French in a while, therefore, you know, it's 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 gone kind of thing. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, just just this afternoon, I was teaching. Um, Year fours, who I taught, because I kind of do PPA cover in my school at the moment. So I, I go into year four for a term, year five, year six. And I taught year fours this afternoon, and I haven't taught them since year the end of year three. I've got, forgotten all of their names. Like, you know, a, a good two-thirds. I just literally, there's a complete blank. And I was saying to them this afternoon, it's because I haven't practiced. I haven't used your names in over six weeks. Therefore, those... Those connections have just gone. And yeah, neural Darwinism is just the theory that it's like a survival of the, the fittest in your brain. Your, your neurons um, are, are literally competing for energy. And, and so are the, the synapses, the connections that you've formed. And yeah, if you don't use them, that's it. They're, they're weak, they will go. Uh, so, and the opposite of that is that neurons that fire together wire together which is, again, simply put, if you're learning, let's say, a new language and you practice and those neurons start to fire together, so they're sending messages back and forth, they eventually form stronger and stronger connections and they wire together. Um, and there's that other expression. I don't think I've put this in the book, but that practice makes permanent or practice makes progress. So, yeah, all of these principles, that you know, they, those are fairly basic principles, but they are backed up by the neuroscience that exists. And those are basic principles that I think all children should know and understand. Like, if you want to get better at something, yes, it helps to have good teaching or coaching. But ultimately, all of the hard work is down to you. Like, you've got to be the one that focuses and pays attention to this. You've got to be the one that puts the effort in. You've got to be the one that practices. You've got to be the one that tries to understand where they went wrong with the mistakes. I cannot do that for you. I cannot make those connections form in your brain for you. So I find that, yeah, teaching that helps children take greater ownership over their learning. And, and yeah. rather than wanting to be or expecting to be spoon-fed by the teacher, it's kind of like, actually, I, you know, this is on me. For sure. And, you know, in terms of, of, of teachers and teaching as well, there's always something um, 
in education or numerous things that are kind of in fashion in vogue we we've joked about it recently on on teachers talk radio about kind of these things that that come and go some things which apparently are making a, a return and i'm sure uh, tom hb is currently rocking in the corner because there were i can't remember a couple he mentioned on staff room 101 the other day but um hmm. One that seems to be doing really well at the moment, I think will continue to do well, is retrieval practice, which you do, which you do talk about as well. But I think, mm-hmm. again, where you kind of expand on it with um, different ways of, of using something like that and then connecting it back to that to that theory. Again, the idea of, well, you're repeating something, but there are different ways to repeat. You don't just have to do a quick fire quiz. The the idea of, of turning something into a story, I thought, was was mm. lovely. And again, that hadn't occurred to me. Um, and telling a story, I think you used the example of the water cycle, where instead of just kind of recalling, you know, the correct terminology, you can turn the whole thing into a beautiful kind of tale that, children take it in turns to say to do parts i mean what a what a great way to to remember something and to keep those, yeah keep those connections going exactly yeah and, and that that again is an idea just backed up again by neuroscience or um yeah the science of learning that we our brains are biased to remember things told in a narrative so if i gave you a list of 10 items and just said remember these 10 items or I told you a really simple short story where those 10 items were kind of woven into that narrative you would remember more in the narrative and and we can use that in the classroom you know um I'm sure uh yeah Tom as a history teacher would would, would, you know a lot of history is about stories of the past right and and I guess some of the best historians are the best storytellers like getting students to understand the past is partly by making it interesting and telling a story telling a narrative um yeah so i just think there's there's lots of ideas that we can experiment with in class to make learning uh, first and foremost i think more interesting and secondly like stickier right so they remember more oh most definitely and uh you know, we'll we'll hopefully uh, have a little bit of time to just touch on the on the teacher side of things um, in a moment. Just kind of building on, and I'm again flicking between between chapters here, but building on the idea of of you know different ways to different ways to um, to teach and to remember things and making those connections and all the rest of it. I was also uh, interested in uh, in the in the stretch zone and linking that to to growth mindset, which you which you talk about in in chapter in chapter five, but how fragile that is because that is unique to to every child the how far you can can push them and again it goes all the way back as opposed to to chapter one and, and building you know it comes from building those relationships because there is no way that a child is going to trust you to allow you to to push them without that initial bond between the two of you and i've yeah. explained that in very poorly i realize no no, no not at all. fashion <laughs> but um you know, to yeah. again, kind of as as a teacher reading reading this book as well, kind of making my own connections between between the different chapters and you know understanding that okay, from the base, then you know comes well the next part and the next part and kind of whichever yeah. uh, bits you want to you want to talk about to talk about yeah you know, this this idea of um, comfort zone and, and and you know understanding that each child you can stretch slightly slightly differently and it sort of all sounds like a lot of work and these are all things that 
you know, teachers are doing daily anyway, but to kind of understand it in a in a bit more detail and and understand that you know this this whole idea of growth mindset is 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 so important and it's not just again I think I don't think it's one of these things that is uh, is a fad. I think it's something that is that that we certainly as adults should should live every day and teach to children as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, again, the stretch zone is is meant to be a simple metaphor for children to learn about, to apply to themselves and understand where they are, like with their learning, like, are they in their comfort zone, i.e. they're not taking any risks, they know the content already, they find it easy, and you spend too long there, and you just get bored, because all of our brains genuinely want stimulation, they want a challenge. So the stretch zone is, yeah, anything that we find tricky, we find harder, we're going to make mistakes on because we don't, we haven't mastered it yet. Um, it, it, you know, it can be anything we find a bit nerve wracking. It's, it's basically anything where we feel slightly uncomfortable doing it because we are outside of our comfort zone. And this is why, like, I think this idea to me is one of the most important ones I like to share in the context of happiness and well-being. Because, again, I think there's this misconception that when I talk about making children happier in school, people think, oh, Adrian just wants kids to not have to try or just, you know, let's put a movie on every day or just make things easy and just fun. And that is not the case at all. The stretch zone is all about getting children out of their comfort zones. And by its very nature, that means making children feel uncomfortable, like in some ways the very opposite of happiness and well-being or or at least you know some people's ideas of what happiness and well-being are why is that important well life is hard right like going for a job going for a job you really want and getting rejected that's really hard asking someone out that you really really like and them saying i don't like you or actually i've got a partner already is hard like rejection's hard um your parents, like I explained earlier, your parents getting ill and bad stuff happening in the world is hard. So actually developing an ability to cope with discomfort in small, safe ways in the classroom and then, you know, outside the classroom as well helps you grow as a person. It make it does make you hardier in the face of stress and challenges. So and that is at the heart of well-being. Being able to withstand stress is a huge part of increased well-being. Being able to um, go after your goals and in, the, and, and in that process get rejected is part of eventually reaching your goals. You know, like there is no, it's like um, Professor Tal Ben-Shahar says, there is no shortcuts to happiness. And when we... Um, when we deny kids the opportunity to face challenges and struggles and not rescue them from them, but support them, but allow them to navigate their way through. When you do that, you're giving children so much, like so much now and so much in the future. Um, so, yeah, the stretch zone is, is I think it's even bigger than just learning. I think it's just about life 
Um, yeah, almost definitely. And you talk about beautiful mistakes as as well, and the idea that you know mistakes should be something that's that's celebrated and that you know that you can share and, and all grow from rather than something that is uh often seen as 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 quite shameful and children you know you often see kind of children kind of going in on themselves or going quiet or not wanting to share that so this idea that you can almost turn that completely on its head is is great as well mm, yeah like yeah like common mistakes common misconceptions um, and also your own, like as a teacher, we constantly make mistakes, whether it's typos or um, I once taught a lesson. I was covering someone's class and I taught this lesson. It was about the phases of the moon. And I basically realized, I think with about 20 minutes to go, that I'd completely got it wrong. Like literally it was the complete opposite of what I had said it was. And I had this moment, it's literally a fleeting moment where I was like, it's 20 minutes left. Do I tell them? <laughs> or or... <laughs> I don't know, I have to. And yeah, I was like, guys, put your pens down. Just just stop. I have completely messed this up. Um, and it was really embarrassing. But I just took that moment to like own that mistake and just say, like, this happens. Like, I, I hadn't spotted it until now, blah, blah, blah. But either way, like that modeling that like your teachers, no one's perfect. Like no one knows everything. Uh, and actually to be a good learner, there needs to be humility there. Right. Like I need to own those mistakes, own up to them. And, you know, I will never make that same mistake again with the phase of the moon because it was such a big one. And now that's hard <laughs> into my memory. Um so, so that's a useful thing. Like big mistakes are actually can be really useful because you will never forget them, which means you'll probably never make that same mistake twice. Um, so, yeah, mistakes next, are important. Next time, just give them all Jaffa cakes. I don't know if you remember that advert. Was it was at the 90s, yeah. maybe in the early noughties. Yeah, I, every time I think of Phases of the Moon, I, that, that, and I'm sure I've shown children that, that advert as well, just as a, a, just for amusement factor because uh, it's it's quite funny but that's always what I, what I think of but equally in talking about you know beautiful mistakes you also and I think it's actually in a different chapter um, about what went well and the idea of, of focusing on you know good things that have happened throughout the throughout the week and uh, ending the week on a on a high is also really important uh, as well yeah completely um so the activity, what went well, was a really simple one again. It's at the end of the week with your team, you, you kind of reflect back over the week you've had in school. So you like literally remind each other about the fun lessons you've had, the fun games you might have played at playtime, the small wins and successes. Maybe you got nine out of 10 on your spelling test, whatever it is. And every child, including the teacher and the teaching assistant, if you've got one, you write down three things that have gone well for you that week. Uh, and then you put, you can, you don't have to do this, you put a little star next to one of them and every child gets to read out one of their what went wells. And, you know, that goes in the what went well book or the what went well board. Like you can do it on a little post-it note. And, you know, that little activity is a really nice way to bookend your week in school. And it turns out, I didn't write about this, I don't think in the first edition, but the second edition I did, there's something called the peak end rule which was discovered by Professor Daniel Kahneman, who's an, a Nobel Prize winning psychologist. Basically, his research found that when you have an experience, you remember 
the peak emotional response, whether that's a positive or negative emotional response. And you typically remember endings of, um, you know, scenarios, situations, experiences. And what he found is that if an experience ends on a positive note, even if during the rest of that experience, there were kind of negative events and pos other positive ones, people typically rate when they're asked, what did you think about your experience? People typically rate the whole experience as being positive. And it's because that positive ending kind of stands out in their memory. Um, and when you think about a typical week in a primary classroom or any classroom, there's lots of ups and downs, let's be honest. There's lots of highs and lows. So, you know, let's deliberately notice and savour the small positives because one, we're more likely to benefit from this peak end rule. Two, probably more importantly, we have this negativity bias in our brains, which basically means, and this is backed up by a lot of research, we typically remember ne negative events um, far more easily than positive ones. Uh, Dr. Rick Hansen says our brain is like Velcro for the bad, but Teflon for the good. So yeah, activities like what went well. Yeah, I love it. It's, what went well is just a way of just re rewiring that bias and trying balance things out a bit more. But again, as you say, like like with a lot of these things, I mean, I've talked to um, my um, my best friend is a is a doctor of virology, and I told her I was I was talking to to you this evening, and that it, yes your book is about well-being in the primary classroom but there's so much of it and you've said it numerous times that applies just to life in general so I think that's another thing that uh, we often lose sight of of the good irrespective of who we are and sometimes it's 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 great to just sit down and think actually you know there is a lot that's 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 gone well this week or this month or whatever it is so yeah I think that's that's great um, I'm conscious that I've only got you for a, a few more minutes, so I just wanted to um, touch on chapter 12, which is about us teachers, because as much as the book is about things that we can do with and for children, none of it is possible without us teachers being, you know, looking after ourselves and being in the right headspace. And again, I know a lot of your other work has, uh, has um, focused in large, you know, in large quantities on, on this. But um, yeah. You know, we, and of course, I know that, uh, and I'm going to say the dreaded O word, uh, Ofsted in, in the UK, have talked about, you know, well-being for teachers and actually being something that they're, they're, they're looking at, whether, you know, we'll believe it when we see it, when we see it, but apparently it is, it is there and on the agenda, but um, moving yeah. on from that, from that hideous thought, um, <laughs> you know, the, the idea that how on earth can we as teachers, you know, promote or instill any of this without checking in with ourselves first and you you devote a, a whole chapter to this um, and talking about you know the things that we uh, wind ourselves up about the things you know things like um you know perfectionism and uh, mm. making you know not getting hung up on 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 certain things and the my favorite part of of this chapter was the idea of good enough um yeah. because we we talk about it a lot but we don't live it yeah like Teachers, like we can be our own worst enemies. Um, we, I think the nature of people that join teaching, and this is a huge generalization, but generally it's people that care, it's people that make a, want to make a difference, which means typically we're very conscientious. Um, 
and, and and that can be that's a really positive thing you want conscientious teachers that care right but the downside of that is that you know when you've got a class of kids and there's various needs um and you want to do a really good job the, the nature of teaching at least in the uk is one that you know you are never finished right there's always something more to do there's always something else you could be planning or whatever and so we can basically burn ourselves out by trying to do everything by trying to be all things to all people by trying to complete our to-do list by trying to go the extra mile for those kids that really are disadvantaged in our classroom uh, you know and we just end up burning ourselves out and that in the long run helps no one like if you burn yourself out and then you leave teaching, you know, you will have will have helped the, the kids that you taught for those years. But then after that, that's it. You, no one's benefiting from your wisdom and experience. So good enough is just a way of taking a step back, slowing down, actually giving less, um, not trying to be perfect, um, not spending your every waking hour thinking about teaching or planning or you know it's about it's ultimately about being realistic and pragmatic um and so yeah you are far more likely to benefit more kids in the long run if you take this more pragmatic realistic approach which is basically yeah, just be good enough which is good like literally as, as the words say good enough is good enough and that expression actually comes from a, a child psychotherapist called Donald Winnicott. I think it's from back in the 50s. Uh, he was basically... Yeah. yeah? I'm just finding the page, yep. Okay. Yeah, he was, he was basically seeing um, predominantly mothers in his clinic with their kids, and the mums were burning out. And, and it's because they were trying to be perfect mothers, catering for their every child's, you know, wish, desire, need... And and he was basically saying, look, actually, that is probably doing more harm to your child than good for a couple of reasons. One, a burnout mum is no good to their kids. And two, actually, by not catering for your child's every need, your child starts to develop their independence. They start to realise that they're separate from you. They start to realise that sometimes the world is, you know, you'll experience disappointments and not get what you need when you need it or want it. Um, and the same is true of, of, of teachers. Like if you aim to be good enough, then you are doing a good enough job. The kids are getting what they need and you will be able to keep doing your job, your important job for much longer. So yeah, that's, that's at the heart of it. Um, and ultimately I think, an idea I keep coming back to when I when I talk to teachers about teacher well-being, I often end on this topic of perspective, and we talk about like what is it that really matters to you. So again, it's a bit like tribal classrooms. Like, what are your values? What's what really matters to you? Why did you get into teaching? And also getting teachers to realise like you're not going to be a teacher forever, right? So make your time in the classroom really count. Uh, and what I mean by that is like when you think about your life in the context of it's going to get a bit deep now, but like life and death, like we're not all, none of us are going to live forever. So at some point in time, 
we're not going to be on this planet. When you put teaching into that context, like you start to care a bit less. And I don't mean about the important stuff. You start to care less about the stuff that doesn't matter. So you don't give a toss about Ofsted because Ofsted doesn't matter. Uh, and you don't give a toss about, you know, pointless paperwork because that doesn't matter. What does matter? Well, the kids matter. Like my relationship with those kids, like whether I am um, a warm and responsive teacher matters to those kids. Uh, and my own family outside of school and my friends matter. And I need, you know, I need to give them my time and my energy and my attention, which means I can't give everything to teaching. So, yeah, it's, I think at the heart of teacher wellbeing is perspective. And it's not easy, but yeah, it's just about stepping back, working out what really matters to you and just trying to live your life in a way that is, that honours your values uh, and honours how you want to live your life ultimately. Well, I think that that is um, a wonderful sentiment and note to end on. So um, Adrian, thank you so much for your time this evening i truly appreciate you joining us i know that um you you have to um escape uh, escape uh, yeah. back to back to the family so i do i do honestly really appreciate the time just quickly before you go um where can we get hold of the book um so well-being in the primary class in second edition is available in all good bookstores it's available on amazon um I think you can even get signed copies on my website, which is teachhappy1h.co.uk. Um, yeah, so. And uh, yeah, I think through 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 your publisher Bloomsbury as yeah, well. Yeah, of course, think. Bloomsbury. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget them; I'll get in big trouble. No. May I interject, Lucy, and say that you yeah. can get a wonderful. Yeah, discount. thanks so much, Lucy. I've really enjoyed our chat this evening. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm going to head upstairs now and, and try and prize my seven-year-old's book out of his hand he's he's reading uh later than he normally would because i'm doing this chat but he's probably loving it oh fantastic well thank you very much adrian i'm just going to let tom interject who's um, been waiting very patiently to, to yes. tell me something but uh, no fantastic show everybody well done i just wanted to say that bloomsbury have currently got a fantastic back to school offer and you can enjoy 30 percent off all um, bloomsbury education books and select children's and academic Silence. books until the 30th of september and that does include well-being in the primary classroom second edition of course second um, edition wonderful so um well adrian i hope we can get you back um at some other point for for a longer chat because there's so much we did not manage to cover in the book this evening but you can go and read it for yourselves there is honestly i have had a great time reading this there is there is so much to to get through to to think about to have a go at implementing yourself so i would really urge you to get hold of a copy um i've already got my deputy head teacher uh, she's already ordering a copy and I'm sure there are several friends of mine and colleagues of mine in school who are hankering after my copy as well although I've got to peel out all my my post-it notes because it currently looks like a slightly crazy person owns this copy um, and it already looks very very well loved because it's been in and out of my bag it's been to and from school because I wanted to make sure that I got my um my tribal flag rights so uh it is honestly a fantastic read it is something that um you can you know, go back to different chapters. You can refer back to to different parts of it. So please do uh, do go and uh, get hold of it. 
Um, in the meantime, um, I'm just going to check in with Tom HB again. Is there any life admin I have missed, Tom? No, I think you've covered all of the life admin, Lucy. I think I've covered all the life admin. Oh, I've done, I've done well. I just, I just have to check these things because you know how forgetful That's I get. Well. <laughs> oh, gold star for me. Excellent. I'm so proud. Um, I will be back with you then in two weeks' time for... Um, my usual show because I feel like I've neglected you you all recently this was a lovely welcome back and a, a fantastic show to do to to kickstart everything again I hope it has inspired you as much as it has inspired me um and um I think I'm gonna let you all get back to your lives now because it is Tuesday night after all and I'm sure well I haven't had dinner yet I don't know about the rest of you so it's probably high time that I went and and did that. Um, Tom, any other exciting shows coming up this week? Yes, or in the next 9 p.m. Emily Edwards is going to be talking about why lesson planning takes so long, especially for the new teachers out there. So if you've just started training or you've just started UCT year or you've just started a new school, Emily Edwards at 9 p.m. on the website ttradio.org forward slash listen hyphen live or on the Podbean app is the place to go. And Nathan, of course, is on at 6 p.m. on Thursday, the 14th of <laughs> September. Tolly McCarthy is back Friday, the 15th of oh, September, 7.30 yeah. p.m. I've got a sneak preview of what that show is going to be about. It's going to be about music for all and making music lessons more inclusive. Can't wait for that one. I'm still hoping that she's going to, um, she has promised me a song at some at some point. Well, Lucy, I'm delighted to inform you that I currently have my ukulele in front of me. Oh, do you? Are you going to serenade us, Tom? No. <laughs> oh, shame. Well, then why, why say it? Why, why, why? Oh. Is, that, is, that, is that all we're getting? That's all you're getting. Oh, shame. Well, okay. Where did we get to? So we've got show it. You're just causing havoc now, aren't you? Um, will this show be available as a podcast? Yes, it will. I hope so. So that will hopefully be um, in the next couple of days. So if you do want to listen back, I know there's some colleagues of mine who wanted to join this evening and couldn't. So I'm hoping that they will listen back as well. In the meantime, Tom, I think we have done a great job here this evening. So I'm going to bid you all good night and I will speak to you all very soon. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.